Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Leviticus chapter 4. In this chapter, we're dealing with the laws for sin offerings. Now, right away, we need to understand how the sin offering is different than the burnt offering. In Leviticus chapter 1, verse 3, we're told that the worshiper would bring a burnt offering to the entrance of the tent of meeting that he may be accepted before the Lord. The burnt offering was the main offering, the principal offering in the Old Testament sacrificial system. It was offered every morning and evening and again on particular holy days. But the sin offering that we're looking at here was an occasional offering. In chapter 4, we encounter a set of detailed prescriptions as to what should be done in the case of unintentional or inadvertent sins, whether committed by leaders or by regular members of the congregation. Now, there's a subtle distinction at work here that our modern Christian minds struggle to get at. Remember, we're learning the rudiments of faith. But so many of us have a hard time with this exercise because we are so steeped in the traditions and assumptions of faith. We're used to the complete package of our liturgy, beliefs, and practices. And so we have a hard time distinguishing between the individual building blocks and molecules that lie beneath it all. But that is the usefulness of this exercise. Leviticus seems to be teaching us that even if we are existentially right with God, even if we are categorically right with God, nevertheless, we must be mindful of personal, occasional pollutants. It might actually be helpful if I used some New Testament terminology here. In John 13, Jesus was washing the disciples' feet in advance of the Last Supper. Peter, as you will recall, was not comfortable with his entire exercise, and he protested. He said, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean. But not every one of you, for he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean, closed quote. So here Jesus says that the person who has bathed is clean, but nevertheless, he still needs to wash his feet. The disciples as a group are clean. They are saved by reason of their faith in Christ, though not all of them are clean. Judas was never a true believer. And yet still, as categorically clean people, the disciples still needed to have their feet washed. So keep that in your minds as a helpful New Testament lens for approaching this sacrifice. This is about pollution. This is about barriers that arise because of our foolish and careless actions that would threaten our intimate communion with God if not properly dealt with. These sacrifices are necessary because saved people sin. Remember, the Apostle John said that if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So, 
Even saved people need to regularly confess their sins so as to be cleansed from all unrighteousness. That's precisely analogous to what is going on here in this chapter. What we're learning here is that sin affects our worship with God, not just as individuals, but as a group. This is the Old Testament equivalent of grieving the Holy Spirit. We don't want to do that. So if we sin, we need to deal appropriately and immediately with that sin. That is what this whole section in Leviticus is about. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, If anyone sins unintentionally in any one of the Lord's commandments about things not to be done, and does any one of them, if it is the anointed priest who sins, thus bringing guilt on the people, then he shall offer for the sin that he has committed a bull from the herd without blemish to the Lord for a sin offering. All right, let's just pause here and notice that the list of actual sacrifices here is not organized the way it was in the previous chapters. In the previous three chapters, the sacrifices were listed from most expensive to least expensive. But here, the organization of the list has to do with the person who committed the sin. It starts with the man at the top. It starts with the high priest. His sin had the widest and the deepest impact on the worshiping community as a whole. So he has to bring the most valuable of the sacrificial offerings. He has to bring a bull. And the blood from his offering has to be taken deepest into the center of the tabernacle complex. We'll get to that in a minute. But the point is, we're dealing with sins that affect the worshiping community. And the more authority and responsibility you have in the worshiping community, the greater the potential impact of your sin. Let that lesson sink in. So, if the sin is committed by the high priest, it brings guilt on the whole people, and thus he shall bring a precious offering to the Lord, a bull from the herd without blemish for a sin offering. Verse 4. He shall bring the bull to the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord and lay his hand on the head of the bull and kill the bull before the Lord. And the anointed priest shall take some of the blood of the bull and bring it into the tent of meeting. And the priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle part of the blood seven times before the Lord in front of the veil of the sanctuary. And the priest shall put some of the blood on the horns of the altar of fragrant incense before the Lord that is in the tent of meeting. And all the rest of the blood of the bull he shall pour out at the base of the altar of burnt offering that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And all the fat of the bull of the sin offering he shall remove from it, the fat that covers the entrails and all the fat that is on the entrails and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them at the loins and the long lobe of the liver that he shall remove with the kidneys, just as these are taken from the ox of the sacrifice of the peace offerings. And the priest shall burn them on the altar of burnt offering. But the skin of the bull and all its flesh with its head, its legs, its entrails, and its dung, all the rest of the bull he shall carry outside the camp to a clean place to the ash heap and shall burn it up on a fire of wood. On the ash heap it shall be burned up. The key to understanding the symbolism here lies in paying careful attention to the subtle differences in the ritual itself. If the sin was committed by the anointed priest, by the high priest, then the blood from the sacrifice would actually have to be sprinkled seven times on the veil 
of the Holy of Holies. That's a Bible way of saying that the holiness of the mediator is of maximal importance in terms of the access and intimacy with God available to the entire congregation. If the high priest sins, then how in the world are the people going to draw near to God? Of course, what this is preparing us for is our deep appreciation for the sinlessness of Christ, our perfect mediator. Having just read the rudiments of this principle in Leviticus 4, 1-12, listen again to the ultimate realization of this principle as explicated in Hebrews 10, 19-22. And I'm guessing that you're going to hear it now in a whole new way. The apostle says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Close quote. Does that come alive for you now? The whole point here is that the holiness of the mediator relates to our intimacy and access as worshipers. How close you and I can get to God depends on the holiness of our high priest. That was quite low and and quite variable in the Old Testament, but it is remarkably and infinitely high and unchanging in the New Testament. Thanks be to God. Verse 13. If the whole congregation of Israel sins unintentionally and the thing is hidden from the eyes of the assembly, and they do any one of the things that by the Lord's commandments ought not to be done, and they realize their guilt when the sin which they have committed becomes known, the assembly shall offer a bull from the herd for a sin offering and bring it in front of the tent of meeting. Now let's just pause here to make sure we understand our terms. What is meant by the congregation and what is meant by the assembly? Because actually in Hebrew, those are generally synonymous terms. Uh, C.F. Keel here, for example, is helpful. He says, the congregation is not the whole people, but the people represented by its heads. Close quote. So these are the leaders, actually. Jewish commentators understand this to refer to what came to be called the Sanhedrin. These are the people in mind here. The leaders have sinned, and it has affected the whole congregation, and so it must be dealt with appropriately. Once again, this is treated as a very serious matter, and thus it requires a very precious animal. Verse 14 tells us that they shall offer a bull from the herd for a sin offering. Verse 15, And the elders of the congregation shall lay their hands on the head of the bull before the Lord, and the bull shall be killed before the Lord. Then the anointed priest shall bring some of the blood of the bull into the tent of meeting. And the priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle it seven times before the Lord in front of the veil. And he shall put some of the blood on the horns of the altar that is in the tent of meeting before the Lord. And the rest of the blood he shall pour out at the base of the altar of burnt offering that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And all its fat he shall take from it and burn on the altar. Thus shall he do with the bull. As he did with the bull of the sin offering, so shall he do with this. And the priest shall make atonement for them, and they shall be forgiven. And he shall carry the bull outside the camp, and burn it up as he burned the first bull. It is the sin offering for the assembly. So again, this sin is perceived as maximally far-reaching. 
the blood from the sacrifice has to be taken inside the tent and sprinkled seven times toward the veil, the curtain that leads to the Holy of Holies. The point here is rather hard to miss. It matters when the human leaders of the congregation sin. If the first section was intended to get us thinking about Jesus, this section is intended to get us thinking about our elders and pastors in contemporary parlance. It matters when they sin. The effect of their sin is deeper. The New Testament says the same thing. James, the brother of the Lord, says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Now, this doesn't mean that we need sinless pastors and elders. James goes right on to say that we all sin. So sin is an ever-present reality, even in our leaders. But it is consequential, and it must be dealt with immediately and appropriately. Pastors and elders need to be extra careful to confess their sins and to maintain short accounts before the Lord. I think that we as churches could do a better job of clearly stating that expectation. Sometimes we act as though we think our pastors are perfect, and therefore they can never confess sins. That is a category error. Only Jesus is perfect. If you you expect your pastor to be perfect, if you expect your elders to be perfect, you're working out of the wrong paragraph lens, Uh, the the perfection lens, the, the ultimate deep impact lens. That's the previous paragraph when we're talking about our high priest. Only Jesus fulfills that expectation. Here we're talking about regular human leaders, and the expectation is that they will sin. That's why there's a process for dealing with that. All human leaders sin. This passage is building that expectation into our religious DNA. Leaders sin. They're fallen. They're human. What they need to do is confess that sin and deal with it appropriately. That's what's being taught here, and that's an instinct we need to recapture. Verse 22, when a leader sins, doing unintentionally any one of all the things that by the commandments of the Lord his God ought not to be done, and realizes his guilt or the sin which he has committed is made known to him, he shall bring as his offering a goat, a male without blemish, and he shall lay his hand on the head of the goat and kill it in the place where they kill the burnt offering before the Lord. It is a sin offering. Then the priest shall take some of the blood of the sin offering with his finger and put it on the horns of the altar of burnt offering and pour out the rest of its blood at the base of the altar of burnt offering. And all its fat he shall burn on the altar, like the fat of the sacrifice of peace offerings. So the priest shall make atonement for him, for his sin, and he shall be forgiven. In this paragraph, we're dealing with the sins of lower level leaders. The Hebrew word used here seems to indicate tribal leaders. The lower level of authority is reflected in the call for a less precious sacrifice. If these leaders sin, they may offer a goat, which was, of course, worth considerably less than a bull. As with all of these sin offerings, the worshiper brings the animal to the front of the tent of meeting. He lays his hand on the head of the animal, at which point he stated why he had brought it, and then he killed it. In this case, the priest took some of the blood and put it on the horns of the altar of burnt offering. So clearly the impact of his sin was not as deep. The altar of burnt offering is the bronze altar, which is in the outer courtyard. So the blood wasn't taken into the tent proper. It was applied to the horns of the bronze altar. So it was consequential, but not as consequential. 
That category, by the way, consequential but not as consequential, is a category in urgent need of recovery. Evangelicals sometimes fall into the habit of saying, all sins are the same before God. Well, that is not true enough to be helpful. It is true that any sin will separate us from God. Even if you committed just one sin, you would still be in maximal need of the forgiveness of God that is only available through Christ. So that is true. In that sense, all sins are equal. But in several other senses, they are not. It is clear that some sins are more socially consequential. And it is true that some sins are more disruptive in terms of the worshiping community. Go read 1 Corinthians 5 and tell me that's not true. Go read Romans 1 and tell me that's not true. It is true. And so, as I said, this is a category in urgent need of recovery. Verse 27. If any one of the common people sins unintentionally in doing any one of the things that by the Lord's commandments ought not to be done and realizes his guilt or the sin which he has committed is made known to him, he shall bring for his offering a goat, a female without blemish for his sin which he has committed. And he shall lay his hand on the head of the sin offering and kill the sin offering in the place of burnt offering. And the priest shall take some of its blood with his finger and put it on the horns of the altar of burnt offering and pour out all the rest of its blood at the base of the altar. And all its fat he shall remove as the fat is removed from the peace offerings. And the priest shall burn it on the altar for a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And the priest shall make atonement for him and he shall be forgiven. So again, one of the key themes here is that the impact of the sin is greater as you ascend the scale of authority and responsibility. The high priest had to bring a bull. The Sanhedrin, the board of elders, had to bring a bull. The tribal chiefs, the lower level leaders, had to bring a male goat. But the general member of the congregation had only to bring a female goat, which was a less precious animal on the sacrificial scale. Thus, we understand the sin of a congregant to be consequential in terms of our corporate worship, but less consequential than the sin of an elder or a pastor. This would be a good time for us to be sure we understand what sorts of sins we're talking about. In each of these instances, the text refers to people who are sinning unintentionally. What does that mean? C.K. Harrison says helpfully here that this would include both conscious acts of disobedience and offenses committed as the result of human weakness and frailty, closed quote. There is a sample list of these sorts of sins in chapter 5, verses 1 to 4. The list includes failing to testify in court when you have information pertinent to a legal matter. We think, of course, of how hard it is sometimes for the police to get people to come forward and testify to a crime that they have witnessed. They are understandably scared. They don't want to get involved. That is a sin of weakness. The list also mentions accidentally coming into contact with an unclean thing. Well, anyone who has ever used the internet can probably relate to that. That is the sin of carelessness. In verse 4, the list mentions a rash oath, saying you're going to do something, and then later cooling down and wisely not doing it, but feeling guilty about the whole matter. Again, we can probably identify with that. That is the sin of temper or impatience, or impetuousness, call it what you like. 
Or it could be that in a moment of good intention, you said you would do something and then you didn't. You forgot. Verse 4 mentions a rash oath to do something evil or good. So suppose you said rashly, I'll help you move on Saturday. But you forgot to check with your wife and she'd already made other plans, so you didn't show up. That's sin too. That's the sin of unreliability and untrustworthiness. That's the sort of sin we're talking about here. The sins that weak, frail, passionate, fallen humans do on a disturbingly regular basis. If a congregant sins in this manner, he may bring a female goat, or as we discover, he may also bring a female lamb. We read about that in the concluding verses. Verse 32. If he brings a lamb as his offering for a sin offering, he shall bring a female without blemish and lay his hand on the head of the sin offering and kill it for a sin offering in the place where they kill the burnt offering. Then the priest shall take some of the blood of the sin offering with his finger and put it on the horns of the altar of burnt offering and pour out all the rest of its blood at the base of the altar. And all its fat he shall remove as the fat of the lamb is removed from the sacrifice of peace offerings. And the priest shall burn it on the altar on top of the Lord's food offerings. And the priest shall make atonement for him for the sin which he has committed, and he shall be forgiven. So as with all the offerings listed in this chapter, the fat parts and the inner parts are removed and burned on the altar, and the blood is applied to a specific part of the tabernacle corresponding to his role within the congregation. However, unlike the sacrifices for the high priest and the high-level leaders, the rest of the animal is not disposed of outside the camp. Most commentators believe that the sheep and the goat sin offerings provided part of the food allowance for the priests. Regardless, the worshiper does not receive a portion because this is not a happy occasion, like the peace offering in chapter 3. This is a somber sacrifice because sin is serious business. It affects us as individuals and it affects the whole congregation as a body. And therefore, it must be dealt with immediately and appropriately through the means that God supplies. As we move from the Old Testament to the New Testament, the means, of course, are different, but the principle remains the same. The relationship between the Old Testament and New Testament is not a relationship of good to bad or bad to good or wrong to right. It is a movement from good to better, and so it is here. Christ is our burnt offering. By means of his blood shed on the cross, we are made children of God. Our status is forever changed. We are justified. And yet, we too need to be careful not to pollute the body of Christ. We need to be careful not to grieve the Holy Spirit. And so we need to attend to our sins. Leaders in particular need to attend to their sins. If the blood of bulls and goats was effective in restoring the confident approach of the Old Testament church, as Hebrews 9.14 says, how much more will the blood of Christ. Thanks be to God. Thank you, friends, for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you're interested in additional resources or previous episodes and series, you can find those at intotheword.ca. You can also connect with Pastor Paul and other Bible readers on the Into the Word Facebook page. Just type Into the Word into the search bar. If you'd like to contribute to this listener-supported program, go to the website and click the Give bar in the top right corner. Once again, that's intotheword.ca. We hope to see you again real soon right here for another episode of Into the Word. Thank you.